0: Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. This may or may not be a fact, but Happy New Year (laughs) to all of you. It is good to be together. A couple of thoughts about land acknowledgement as they connect to what we're on about this morning. A lot of the time, in my experience at least, um, land acknowledgements seem to have this kind of, I'm going to say groveling tone to them. Kind of, you know, uh, this tone of, uh, I'm a white person and I'm representing a white institution and we've been very bad and we're very sorry and we don't really know what to do about it, but we can at least mention that we know that we're on stolen land. You know, a little bit of that that timbre sometimes. And all of that might be true. That might need to be acknowledged. And some sort of formal land acknowledgement might be as good a way to start and be reminded as any. But it might also come up a little bit short. And for my part, I find it helpful to imagine that when I take the time to mention that I'm grateful to be welcomed here on Treaty 1, I'm barely scratching the surface. We, uh, we watched this movie over the break that included a scene where two characters were trying to get into the boxcar of a speeding train. And it's a trope, I know. And the filmmakers made sure that you could tell that they knew that it was a trope. But even with all of that taken into account, that, that image of running alongside something that's already in motion, trying to get on it while in real danger of being harmed if you misstep or you don't actually make the jump, that still feels to me like an apt metaphor for this this intersection of colonialism and indigenous history. And personally, I find it helpful, and again, scratching the surface, but I find it helpful to think of it this way. When someone takes care of something, when someone nurtures something, invests in it, regards it as sacred, and then invites me to share it, I shouldn't say, hey, thanks, and then kind of take a quick glance at it and then shelve it. There's, there's, all this, there's all this momentum to take into account, all this motion and energy that's already headed in a direction, not to mention the trust that goes along with an offering like that. My job, it feels like, is to try to catch up, to watch my steps while also running as hard as I can, and to be the one willing to take the risks to make the connection. That's increasingly how I imagine this land that we gather on, as a sacred place stewarded by indigenous peoples long since before what the traditions I'm from would regard as history, moving forward in a direction that I can either do the work of catching up to or, you know, miss the train. Saying that I'm grateful to gather here on this land, on the original lands of the Anishinaabe and the Cree and the Oji Cree and the Dakota and the Dene peoples and on a piece of land that is also the homeland of the Métis Nation, that feels like a particular step in the journey of getting caught up and on board. It's not, it's not the whole thing, but it's a step. Now, that might feel like a lot of time to spend on something that wasn't on the stated agenda for the talkie bit today, but in my mind, at least, it's deeply connected. And I hope that I can illustrate in the next few minutes what's on the agenda is exploring the connection between imagination and change. And how those things can only truly thrive, imagination and change, can only truly thrive in a context of uncertainty. We can't do the work of making the kinds of connections I've just been describing without imagining something that does not yet exist. So let's, let's start with a quick recap of some of what I touched on in the blurb last week, didn't explore in a talky bit because we work together. And then I want to get into some particulars about that as they might apply to how we imagine the table. The big idea that's running in the background of all of this is that uncertainty is not only something we need not fear, but something that brings with it great possible benefits. Now, I do not want to be naive or pollyanna on this point. Um, we touched on it already this morning, but again, to recap, uncertainty is something that we are instinctively averse to as human beings. It signals danger to us. So consider this. You don't have to testify, but consider this and be honest with yourself. If you hear an unfamiliar noise in your home at night, is your first response usually cheerful curiosity? <laughs> right. I mean, it might be, but the odds are pretty good that it tilts a bit more toward concern, you know, fear, anxiousness, maybe even anxiety or dread. And even if it's more along the lines of, you know, that kind of sounds like an expensive furnace noise uh, rather than I think there's a monster in the basement. Most of us don't default to something like, oh, goody, this should be fun to explore, right? Like it's just not, it's not our default setting as human beings when we encounter uncertainty. So it takes some deliberate consideration to entertain other possibilities of that. And even then, it's hard work. So really, why bother? Well, one important reason to do the work is that uncertainty is part of life. In other words, it's there and here, whether we want it to be or not. And if we can learn to either not fear it or even to fear it less, we can move through life A little bit better. So here's a take on uncertainty that I find personally helpful and that I think is also a good fit for our reason for existence as a community. As I talked about in the blurb last week, there's an important link between how we think about uncertainty and how we approach the notion of hope. Hope is what keeps us going. Hope is why we act in a forward-looking way even when it might seem foolish to do so. Hope, as so many who have suffered remind us, doesn't depend on the certainty of particular outcomes. Nelson Mandela, somebody who certainly operated at the intersection uh, of uncertainty and hope, put it this way. He said, our human compassion binds us the one to the other, not in pity or patronizingly, but as human beings who have learnt how to turn our common suffering into hope. For the future, it's not about. Well, we'll get to this. Let's just leave that where it is for right now. Hope, as I said in the blurb, is what motivates us to act. And in that in that piece two weeks ago, I referenced the book "Hope in the Dark: Untold Histories and Wild Possibilities" by uh, by Rebecca Solnit, in which she says that hope is quote not the belief that everything was is or will be fine, nor is it a sunny everything is getting better narrative. Instead Hope is the belief that, quote, we don't know what will happen and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. Hope is, Solnit says, the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may matter, who and what it may impact, are not things we can know beforehand. That's what she means when she talks about the spaciousness of uncertainty. And because we can't know them in advance, because they're not the sort of things about which we can be certain, we need to hold the possibility of good outcomes in our imaginations. We need to do the work of seeing something that doesn't exist yet, something we might never see or experience as a lively picture of our preferred future. That's very different than certainty but it's also very powerful. If you wish, this is the kind of stuff that we might use you know, vision language for. It's the sort of work that we do when we let ourselves enter the space of uncertainty, acknowledge that that space is sometimes frighteningly huge and filled with so much that we can't see, and then, having acknowledged that, we choose to receive that space as a place Of potential generosity, a place where we not only have permission, but are even inspired to imagine a future that is better than the present, and then to let that imagined future stoke the fires of our hope. It's a long string of ideas. Perhaps it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) This is not the message we will get from the evening news. (laughs) As I expect most of you know by now, I am not inclined to conspiracy theories. I don't think we need them. Reality is strange enough as it is. That said, I think it's worth remembering that the media, at least the media sources that tend to dominate the North American cultural landscape, tend to be driven by profit and bad news sells. It stirs us up. It makes us click on things. It makes us buy things. Or it makes us at least feel compelled to be present in spaces that can be monetized and sold to advertisers. That's not a conspiracy. That's just a particular version of plain old capitalism doing what it does. And, unless we're willing to do the work of imagining different, that's a space that's like a, like a cultural tractor beam. It's very powerful. It, it does pull us in. So, there's some tension there. I've grown up around religion all my life. I've been part of religious institutions most of my life. And, frankly, although I've had the privilege along the way of working with some deeply creative people, On balance, my experience has been that the realm of religion labors under a dearth of imagination. It is too often committed to the heedless veneration or preservation of the past, frequently in the interest of sending the message that if we can just find a contemporary way to express something old, then we can be certain of how things will be forever. I believe that we can do better than that. I really do. And I also believe that it will often mean starting by trying to imagine something different than what's already in front of us. So, with all of that as background, uh, I want to offer a few different ways that we might imagine the table that I believe can inspire us to enter the space of an uncertain future, deeply informed by what I would call action oriented hope. This is not an exhaustive list. These are starters, and they're my starters. They really might not be yours. In fact, they might be stoppers for you. I don't know. But I'm going to put them out there, and you can decide what to do with them. In my life, inspiration is where I find it. And um, so I was at the local SO last week, you know, waiting in line for my turn to buy liquid gold. <laughs> and I was deferring the pain of paying by looking at the newspaper headlines. Basically a self-defeating strategy, right? I mean, Just think about what we were just talking about. However, inspiration being what it is, it didn't care, and the headline that caught my eye was about some city, I think it might have been Edmonton, not entirely sure, but a Canadian city, that was apparently doing a much better job of providing safe injection sites than we are as a city. I can, I can remember what I was reading when I first encountered a thoughtful rationale for safe injection sites in particular and more generally for what is often called harm reduction as a, as a way of thinking about care. And if, if you grew up around the same versions of religion as I did, you might have found, you might still find, yourself struggling to accept harm reduction as a legitimate approach to addressing some aspects of addiction. And there's a reason for that. I heard a documentary this past week about the history of hospitals and the ideas about hospitality that operate within that history think just think about the name of hospital, and you can you know there's a link linguistically, right? They're about hospitality. It was fascinating to me, and it was also a little disheartening to hear how tangled together the ideas of offering true unconditional care to the sick were with the ideas of judging other people's behaviors against some predetermined notions of what was okay and what wasn't, and then deciding whether or not they got the same level of or access to medical care. I mean, if you want a big, broad strokes illustration of this in our Canadian history, just check out the history of the parallel existence of general hospitals and indigenous hospitals. There's a, there's a big, black, bold, kind of outlined illustration. The one, though, that really made me go, oh, I feel this illustration came from earlier on in the history of hospitals. Um, Late 18th century, London, England syphilis was a runaway epidemic and when people came to hospitals in London to be treated for that condition they were accepted for treatment. That was the mission of the hospital to be hospitable and then when they had been cured of the condition and they were dismissed, they were beaten on the way out. I know. That is recognizably the same kind of weirdness as God loves you, but he'll torture you in a fire in the basement if you don't believe the right things or behave in the right ways. It's the same logic. We're here to treat the body, but we're going to punish the body. Why? We're going to treat the physical symptoms, but we're going to be pugilists about the moral estimates that we have of the genesis of those conditions same same dilemma that's running in the moral background of is harm reduction a legitimate strategy for addiction harm reduction says offer care without judgment because humans are suffering and we can do something about that now i said i was going to talk about ways we can imagine the table so let me offer this as a question when you think about the future of the table what happens in your imagination if you think of this community as a religious harm reduction site? <laughs> kind of a kind of a safe place for perhaps getting what is needed without having to unduly endanger yourself to do so I don't want to suggest a one-to-one correlation between this analogy and the particular struggles and dangers of addiction to hard drugs, which increasingly, I was—I wrote injectable drugs in my notes, actually, and then on the drive here this morning <laughs> uh, was listening to somebody on the radio talking about this exact issue, and uh, they made the point, it was in the context of a statistic that came out this past week about how many people have died of overdoses in Canada this past year, And the person that was talking about it is somebody deeply involved in that community of care and they were making the point that one of the problems technically is that increasingly these people are not injecting the drugs that kill them, they are smoking them. And the base, the chemical base of that is you can't stop it with naloxone or you know, like you can't just put the brakes on it when you do have the chance to. So not injectable. I don't want to draw too hard a correlation between that reality and the analogy I'm making, but I also don't want to step back from the real harm that some people have experienced at the hands of religious people and institutions. So by way of a reminder to me and all of us, this is work that we do, if we choose to do it, in the generous space of uncertainty where many different outcomes can be possible. And it is not our job to determine the outcome. It is our job to extend care without judgment. Uncertainty. And creative space. A second image to consider. Bono is kind of everywhere these days. Uh, doing what he knows how to do, which is tour behind a new album, except it's a new book. Uh, I haven't read it. Anybody? Tim, did you get it for Christmas in the end? I did. I haven't read it yet. Okay, that's, that's thick, man. Yeah, it's very thick. I <laughs> want to hear him. <laughs> good, good, it is a voice after all, isn't it? Yeah. So, so I haven't read it, but I have listened to some portions of some interviews that he's done a, along the way of, of you know, promoting the book and talking about it. And I found some of that pretty interesting. In one of those conversations, he was asked to read a passage from the book and he shared this. He's speaking in this particular uh, chapter and, and quote about biblical stories. He, he wrote this. These fantastical stories help us make our way through our metaphysical lives. If science is how we navigate the physical universe, then religious texts offer to navigate the more than physical, the existence we can't even prove exists. Stories that are instruments of inquiry into an invisible world that we strain to see, a world we glimpse through art and family and friendship, stories of a love that has no beginning and no end, I'm comforted by this idea of infinite love, the bigger picture beyond the frame. I think my favorite turn of phrase in there is the thought that stories might be instruments of inquiry into an invisible world that we strain to see. That's, that's, that's pretty good. Good job, Bono, said Tim, <laughs> qualified to judge as he is. A couple of things that stuck with me as I reflected on what the table is and could be, as it kind of springs out of that. The first, a little bit of a critique, uh, because it seems to me that although I share the perspective that the elaborate metaphors of the biblical stories, for example, as a particular set of sacred texts, I I share the perspective that those stories can give us language for our metaphysical lives— I think that Bono might be drawing a convenient but, I would say, indefensibly crisp line between the language of science and the language of religion. I think a century ago that was probably truer than it is now. I just think that line's starting to get pretty blurry. But the second thing that struck me was that Bono, like many or maybe even most of us, is what I would call a story seeker. This guy knows how to tell stories. And he knows how to tell stories that have a genesis somewhere in his own experience, but that somehow have an embracing breadth to them. And so we all walk around singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, and it means what it means to us. That's what a good storyteller does. That's what a good songwriter does. And what this quote points to in that regard is the notion that sometimes it takes more than one story to account for our lived experience both the physical or tangible parts and also the existence that we can't prove exists, that part. And I, I thought this Bono summary of the biblical texts as a story about love with no beginning and no end, I thought that was a very embracing way to describe that particular library and one that could readily encompass science as well as metaphysics. In any case, when it comes to the table, I wondered if thinking of it as a place for story-seeking might be helpful, at least to some of us. One final image. I grew up in a pretty small town, went to pretty small schools. And in those schools, the lab was the room that had these tall counters that had Bunsen burners, test tubes, you know, all that kind of sciencey stuff. And it wasn't until my world expanded a bit that I heard the word lab used to describe places where, you know, where social science was being done. And perhaps it wasn't until then that it occurred to me that something that has become an abiding interest and a focus of my formal study, such as it's been, the idea that culture is something that you can experiment with, (laughs) and that in some respects, it's a good idea to have designated spaces for some of that experimentation. Maybe not least of all so that, you know, if you blow something up, at least it happens in a contained space, in a designated space, right? Reduce the damage or have a chance to observe the results more directly and make something of them. We've considered, in this space, we've considered before the idea that religion is a cultural linguistic construct, that it's, that it's something that we humans make, and to make it we use things like words and ideas and beliefs. We use the raw material that we're surrounded by. That's the stuff that we're working with when we explore what we believe when we take a belief and we sort of you know, put it on the lab bench and we, we dissect it, we, we take it apart into its pieces. I hope this isn't too squelchy. I won't go too far down this path. We ask, let's switch to chemical for a minute. We ask, what would happen if I mixed this idea with that idea? Would it go up in smoke? Would it make a new perfume? Would it just sit there like a gray lump? Would the pieces not mix at all? What would happen What happens in your imagination in the world where not knowing the future makes room for many possibilities if you think about the table as a kind of culture lab? A place to experiment with ways in which new considerations might fit or not fit with older previous ones and what might come of combining things in ways that you haven't before. Also, sometimes... It's just really nice to have some lab partners when you don't feel like you know what you're doing, isn't it? <laughs> it's nice to not be alone going, if this blows up, I want somebody to know I was trying <laughs> to make something good. I'm, uh, I'm going to leave that there. So those are starters, like I said, but I'm going to give the last word on this to someone who famously pushed some large, unwieldy cultural norms in a direction that they weren't collectively inclined to go. And in his particular case, uh, it was a costly thing to do. But the ripples from it are still traveling across this continent and throughout humanity in ways that I think most of us would acknowledge are good. And I would, I would say that if you don't carry anything else away from this you know, half hour of your life, carry this. I think it captures both beautifully and credibly the work of imagining a better future and then doing the sometimes rather hard work of moving toward it. This is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. who said, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. We must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. Peace.